You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Sean Leahy, and joining me in this virtual recording studio is my colleague and co-host, Dr. Clarin Collins. Hi, Clarin. How are you? Good, Sean. How are you today? I'm doing well. Doing well. So for today's show, Clarin and I are joined by some amazing guests to discuss the futures, uh, or perhaps the history and implications of the futures of educational technology. Uh, so without any further delay, let's go ahead and introduce our guests for today. Returning to the podcast is Dr. Lee Graves-Wolf. Lee, you were joined us in season one, I think, right? Probably. Yeah, <laughs> so long ago, we can't tell. Uh, Lee, uh, just a refresher, Lee, Lee is a clinical associate professor in the Educational Leadership and Innovation EDD program here uh, in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at ASU. She is a teacher scholar focusing on online education, K-12 teacher professional development, and relationships mediated by and with technology. And also prior to joining ASU, Lee was the director of the Master of Arts in Educational Technology program uh, at Michigan State University. So Lee, welcome back. We're happy to have you. Thank you for having me. And we are also, I think I can speak on behalf of the panel, uh, we are thrilled to welcome uh, for the first time to the podcast, uh, Audrey Waters, uh, who is a prolific writer, uh, an author, an independent scholar, public speaker, and creator and voice behind the blog Hack Education, the history of the future of education technology. And Audrey has published four anthologies of her public talks, which I absolutely love reading this as a full list. So we have The Monsters of Education Technology, The Revenge of the Monsters of Education Technology, The Curse of the Monsters of Education Technology, and Monsters of Education Technology 4. And uh, perhaps most recently had published her latest book, Teaching Machines, uh, the History of Personalized Learning, from available from MIT Press, that examines the pre-digital history of personalized learning. Uh, welcome, Audrey. We're, we're thrilled to have you join us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. And so, yeah, I think this is just an exciting opportunity for us to sort of talk around and kick around this idea of educational technology and explore where we are, where we're going, how do we feel about all of that. And I thought maybe... I suppose as we get started here, taking a stab at sort of defining for our listeners what it is we mean when we say education or educational technology. So I think maybe I just want to start there and just throw out, you know, Lee or Audrey, does any, anyone want to take a stab at like, how do you define what, what, what are we talking about when we talk about educational technology? Uh, I'll, I'll go. Uh, but I would say that I like to offer a definition that flummoxes people. Um, I, I'm actually a Twitter quitter. Um, but when <laughs> I was on Twitter, uh, it was always very enjoyable to troll people. Um, and which is probably why it's good. I'm not on Twitter <laughs> any longer. Um, but I would troll people and try to push the boundaries of what people mean when they talk about ed tech. Because uh, I do think that people have a very limited view, just even of the kinds of technologies that schools use. Yeah. Uh, and so I often say that my very favorite piece of education technology is the window. If anyone's ever taught in a classroom or bit or taken a class <laughs> in a room that doesn't have windows, I think one recognizes how important natural light can be. And it's it's a way of thinking about the built environment that isn't always, I mean, I think that in some ways digital 
kinds of kind of pushes us to rethink in some ways, but the built environment, the infrastructure of school and who gets windows, which classrooms get windows, which kind of schools get windows. Um, what is a, what does that natural light do for the kind of environment for teaching and, and learning? Uh, of course, the window is, is not what most people <laughs> mean when they talk about it. Yeah. I, Audrey, I absolutely love that because one of the things, so in a, similarly, one of the things that I will oftentimes say with that too, when we think about this, what is, you know, what is ed tech is, is using something like, I'll use a chair as an example, right? Um, similar kind of a thing, because I think one of the challenges in this, so I pulled a, um, and Lee, I want to hear, I want to hear your, your definition here. Um, but I pulled an example. So this is, this was just from Wikipedia, uh, as their definition of it, uh, of educational technology is the combined use of computer hardware software and educational theory and practice to facilitate learning to which I have a big issue with, because I think in one of the, one of the pieces I think is a long standing uh, issue and on order, again, this kind of leans into, I think some of the, the background of your latest book too, is this conflation with education technology, meaning computerized or digital based um, hardware, software platforms and things like that. And really it's so much more than that. Um, it's so much deeper than that. So, um, but Lee, what, when you, when you kick around educational technology, what, how, what's, what's your favorite way to describe it? Or how would you, how would you define the space that we're kind of in? Cause it's a big space. So you mentioned my work at Michigan State uh, in the ed tech program, a name, but it had the, that word in the title, but the funny thing and something I'm, I'm proud of sort of looking back at the work is that we always sort of started out students by saying there's no such thing as an educational technology. And again, that would sort of turn them on um, the idea on its head and, and generate a lot of discussion. And I'm not good at remembering quotes, but I can see one of the first slides that we would put up about the chalkboard quote. Like I'm sure all of you have seen it, like a quote from something in the 1800s that sounded like it could be something of today, but they were actually talking about the chalkboard. So really it's a construct that we define anything can be an educational technology. Um, and I think we've sort of seen the dangers of that as we're talking about the future of what is then labeled and commodified as an educational technology. But I think from my pedagogical stance and something that, again, we, we tried to instill in the students that there really is no such one individual thing. It really is um, up to the individual to modify, play, explore the world around them and create technologies that um, or tools that enable and enact with, uh, interact with learning. Yeah, wonderful. Claren, how about you? I mean, when you think of ed tech, like what, what comes to your, to your top of mind? Well, I would say prior to the pandemic, I wouldn't have had much um, knowledge or experience with it, but being a parent going through virtual learning, I saw very quickly the difference between um, teachers who were willing to engage with students differently via a computer and other teachers who simply carried on as usual with a computer in front of them as the only means with which to connect with students. And so um, I was blown away, fortunately, with one of my daughter's teachers by all of the different ways she engaged with students. And honestly, I think my daughter had a little bit of a shock when she went back to in person because of the the change of all of the ways that her teacher was engaging her. So um, I think I had a crash course into 
the breadth and expanse of it during the pandemic as a parent and kind of the observational end. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, when I think about it, I, I think one of the things that really comes to mind is, again, thinking about, you know, d- divorcing ed tech from the computerized or the digital um, sort of conflation I had mentioned earlier, but really also, you know, it is this act of whatever the tool or technology might be, is that really this idea of this act of understanding and asking, being critical um, of it as well, and understanding the affordances and constraints of what it is and how it can be used, like as Lee mentioned, in you know, personalize it, individual, how does this work in your context and what, how do you achieve the goals that you're trying to do? Um, because I think it's an interesting piece and I think we'll, we'll have time today to talk a little bit about that as well in terms of, you know, where does it go wrong when we have different, different actors and different, um, points of view pushing, uh, or prioritizing things, um, maybe not with the learner or with the educators, uh, in mind and instead focusing more on the technology, um, itself, but I th- can I add? Yeah, please, Audrey. I think that what you said, Sean, is really important because I think it's it's we need to recognize that all of the technologies that we use in schools, that we use for teaching and learning, carry with them the beliefs of the designers of what they think schools should look like. And so I think that that's really important to recognize that when we can and cannot re- reuse the technology in other ways as well. You talked about the chair, the chair being a, a, a piece of education technology. And there's a way in which when we, I, I'm a, my background is in the humanities. When we walk into a classroom, you know, we, we, we don't like the rows, desks and rows. We rearrange the furniture in a circle. Um, and that, that's a, that's a disruption of, I think the way in which um, some people imagined the classroom to look like uh, with with rows, desks, uh, desks in rows, and the teacher at the front of the classroom. Um, but with other kinds of technology, particularly digital technology, it can be very hard to rearrange the furniture. You are really stuck with the design and the the pedagogy uh, in many ways that the that the engineer, that the software designer imagined. And so I think it's important to always think about the what you uh, think about that when we adopt certain technologies, not just what is that, what is that pedagogy, but are there ways in which we can actually play with it? Um, we can actually do things differently, or are we really stuck with the way in which the pedagogy that the de- that the developer has imagined? Such a great point and something as a practitioner I struggle with in the digital space. I teach primarily online and use approaches that go against a lot of course management system type of thing. I can't move my chairs sometimes. I try to to move the chairs. And one of those examples is in the grade book where I I don't use grades, but inevitably there's the grade book in the course management system. And I try to, it works so hard against my own pedagogical beliefs and I have to maintain, it adds that extra load for me as an instructor because I don't have a late policy, but you, if something, you have to put a, a date on an assignment in the course management system and then it turns from white to red if something is quote unquote late. And there's, you know, as much as we as instructors who want to move in these mobile, you know, in these digital spaces, there's this super duper extra load that the the systems lock in and don't give you um, the same sort of space that a classroom would be where I could move 
the circle, the chairs into a circle easily. And that's something that just sparked my mind, Audrey, with, with what you're saying and how I think oh, so many of what are branded as educational technologies just don't, they put in so many roadblocks to making that flexibility possible. Yeah, I think, Lee, that's a good point. I, I like, I mean, I think one of the, those are one of those challenges, right? When we talk about, and I think this is true when we talk about any you know, emerging technology or any technology, you know, what, what are those unintended consequences of using and adopting these things? And I think that's a really, I, I never thought about it in that way of this analogy of moving the chairs or rearranging the furniture to suit your need in that, in that digital space. And what you really quickly hit, especially when you're, for example, like a CMS system um, is you, you run into this, this, this wall of the prescriptive use that may have been built with all of, you know, with, with certain, you know, uh, intentions and certain best practices at, at, at heart, um, but ultimately ends up in a very, you know, um, strict way of using that technology. And therefore, especially lead to your point, when you're teaching in an online uh, modality, it also becomes the environment. And so then you have this sort of double sort of, sort of restriction uh, um, on that piece, which I think is really, really interesting. So I'd like to sort of toss out a, a question that sort of looks to the past. Um, as we all know, there have been absolutely no shortage of lofty claims over the years, uh, decades, or I mean, I think you could probably even argue century or longer um, about how some new technology, right? How some new or emergent technology of the time would revolutionize teaching, uh, teaching and learning. And yet to date, you know, I think it could be argued that we've only seen marginal you know, transformations from these and that most of these claims have come and gone without leaving that groundbreaking transformation that was promised. And, you know, Leah, just, that just really also makes me think of just what you had said at the beginning here around using that sort of day one introduction to a, a program in ed tech saying there, there is no educational technology specifically and thinking about that. So I, I suppose that maybe uh, Audrey, I'd like to kind of point this in your direction, um, especially given sort of, you know, your new book, The Teaching Machine, looking at that, the history of personalized learning, specifically the the pre-digital era of ed tech, which, you know, and you're in, you kind of go all the way back to, you know, to the likes of B.F. Skinner, you know, what can we learn about where we are today, like the current state of ed tech as, as, as we see it from investigating this history of the way ed tech has been approached? Going back to, I mean, essentially, I think, um, you know, if we go back to Skinner, what are we talking, like early early 1950s? Yeah, the, the mid 20th century. I think it's so important. I mean, I think this is part of the problem with this definition of ed tech that is so deeply intertwined with computers. Because then when you tell the story of ed tech, it sort of begins and ends with the computer that nothing, there was nothing before. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden the computer appeared and then there was this potential for everything to change. And even that isn't a good history of the computer, right? Um, I often joke that I sometimes find that people tell the history of ed tech and it seems to begin when they first used a computer at school. Uh, so for people of my age, perhaps uh, ed tech began with, you know, Oregon Trail and the Apple IIe. Um, for other people, uh, ed tech seemed to have begun when they first had to use uh, Canvas or the first use the learning management system or um, ed tech began with the iPad. Uh, bless your heart if that's your story. Um, 
But I, I think it's important to recognize that uh, the field of education psychology and it's really only, uh, you know, its origins in the early 20th century as well. The f- education psychology was really interested in building machines for teaching and learning from the outset, um, building machines for testing as well. And I think we can see the history of ed tech that this is, it's a funny word, but I mean, that does, has been hard coded that the, some of these theories, uh, some of these beliefs about what learning looks like, how we can assess learning, uh, what teaching looks like, what teaching should look like. Um, These have really been um, hard-coded into our technologies for a very long time. And we're there at the outset of working on mainframe computers in the early 1960s and haven't gone away. Uh, These are are really sort of fundamental foundational ideas of education technology that we can trace back to the early 20th century. I, I think that's really interesting to think about that this idea of so much, you know, again, thinking of Lee's example of, of the content management system and how the structures of that, the grade book, the, this module comes after that module is sort of hard coded in that original sort of, you know, almost mechanical way of taking something like uh, a learning environment and how can you distill that down into a programmatic a way and then, you know, sort, sort of serve that up. I think so, Lee. Just thinking in, to the full team here too. So, Clarin or anybody else, you know, as well. You know, thinking back, perhaps over the last 10, 10 years or so, plus or minus. You know, Otter, you mentioned, you know, if your first experience with ed tech is in is an iPad era, right? So, where that's about ten years ago now. If we kind of look back at the last ten years, has ed tech held up to the hype? I mean, is this kind of this constant thing where you know we're always seeing these promises and they fall short? Is this just sort of this? This, this wicked cycle that keeps repeating other examples of things that EdTech got right, uh, or conversely, areas that EdTech really fell short of their promises, you know, going thinking, you know, maybe from like the 2010s forward. Trying to figure out a way to, to craft a clear answer, <laughs> to that, but it sort of connects actually to some of the things that, that Audrey said in connecting this with educational psychology. And my, um, I got my doctor 11 years ago in educational technology and educational psychology is what the name of the degree was. And the name of that degree had been learning technology and culture. And it's always been this sort of flux, I think, and, and churn within those dialogues. And it, it was recently in reaching and reading teaching machines that I had my own existential moment, I guess, in in terms of seeing how intertwined those two fields really have been and how could I have not seen that so clearly uh, 10 or 15 years ago and then wondering what, you know, what if any harms I had had done to others and sort of um, bringing them in through through the field itself. So I, I think of anything from a personal standpoint, and maybe this just happens with age naturally, I'm not sure as I'm getting, uh, I definitely would have been in the Oregon Trail um, introduction to technology and education. Um, but certainly my, my stance towards this has, has increasingly become critical. And I look back to those 10 years ago, wondering, was I critical enough during those times? And then also, Audrey, you had mentioned Twitter and we were all so active on Twitter 10 years ago and the promises that 
the, the amazing things that that enabled and now seeing what it has disabled over time. So is that just what I'm trying to personally work through in this um, rambling message here is, is just the, the cyclical nature and evolution of this and how can I continue to take that critical lens to my to my own work as I think towards the future. Because I feel like I've never been really good at predicting the future, but maybe, and I just kind of say that as a an excuse sometimes, and I wonder if I need to embrace that a little bit more to shape the future um, of discussions around technology and education and education just in general. Um, I'm thinking back to the early days of of ed tech, of, of naming the degree program itself. Why did we have to call it educational technology? Why did, why couldn't that just been pedagogy or teaching? So as you can tell, all sorts of things sort of swirling through my mind at the moment, trying to connect those, those threads across each other. And like you said, originally, Sean, bringing it back to, if we look back 10 years ago, where would we have been? It's so challenging because the, I think people who work in education, and I'll, I'll stereotype the very broad brush here, but I think people who work in education really believe that um, in the mission of education, believe that it is transformational and are always looking for ways to improve teaching and learning. I think that the tech industry is very good at telling incredible stories and has a lot of economic, cultural, political power. Um, and tells tall tales, spends a lot of time um, telling elaborate tales that sound great. And it's very easy to be swept up in the kinds of promises because we do want to see education transformed. We want it to be better. We want people to have uh, better access. We want people to be able to uh, succeed and excel in, in school. We want people to love their experiences as, as learners. Uh, we want them to enjoy their experiences as teachers. So it's, I mean, I think the marketing of Silicon Valley and the, the amount of money that goes into the storytelling that comes out of Silicon Valley um, is it's incredible. And I think it also uh, is particularly appeals to certain uh, very American ideas about individualism, for example, ideas about science and technology as being really the things that are going to shape the future. And so, I, I think it's not a surprise that we that we that we get get swept up in this. It's not a surprise that that we hear these kinds of stories. It has been now a decade since the year of the MOOC, and so it's it's worth it's worth returning to some of these promises that we heard in 2012, you know, Sebastian Thrun saying, for example, that, you know, in uh, 50 years time, there would only be 10 universities left in the world um, and Udacity would be one of them. And last time I checked, Udacity, <laughs> Udacity won't be. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's a, that raises a really interesting question as we think about you know, just this, this, this role, this, this intersection between, you know, the Silicon Valley area, the technologies that are being created and, you know, these, these, um, this is an audio format, so nobody can see the air quotes I'm putting here, but like the solutions that are being um, developed and then ultimately sold and marketed, right. As, as a solution to something. But one question that I would have, that I would pose here is how do we work to ensure like a more either a more or maybe the first time thinking about a real humanistic approach um, to these 
existing and I will extend it to emerging um, technologies and education. So really working as we as we take the next step and as we work as professionals, as critics of the in the field, as practitioners, you know, as researchers, et cetera, how do we ensure that we're protecting these vulnerable populations? I mean, there's no shortage of examples of how new and emerging technologies have, you know, disadvantaged, you know, the the people who are in the in the weakest position possible. Um, to speak up for themselves or or anything like that, and and being really cautious about these unintended consequences uh, of of new tech. And I think you know, Audrey, I think one when I was thinking about this question too, one of the things that sort of popped up was a, a piece that you have done around the pigeons of educational technology and how do we ensure that you know we aren't losing our humanity through this 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 application and this approach of looking for a solution to to better the uh, the experience of of education um, and teaching and learning, and how do we how do we do that with technology in a humanistic way, so that we don't give up uh, those things that are you know so so brilliant to the art of teaching and learning, and those and the creativity and the spontaneity, and and so how do we how do we approach that? What's what are some thoughts around around taking this humanistic approach to emerging technology? I uh, this is so. Hard hard because I think that one of the challenges is that uh, educational institutions themselves don't have that humanistic approach either, quite frankly. And so I think it's, you know, we can't even just say, well, we need to let, you know, we need to let universities lead the way because universities, universities um, as institutions aren't that great about caring for people. Uh, they aren't, they aren't that great about necessarily prioritizing uh, teaching and learning, even you, you, <laughs> the the mission of the universities might uh, gesture towards that, but often the priorities are elsewhere uh, in in research, for example, or athletics. Uh, so I, it, it's really hard. And some some of the most uh, egregiously disgusting, awful, terrible technologies have emerged from or educational technologies have emerged from people working at universities, right? Um, because these technologies dovetail with some of the values of the university, things like plagiarism checkers, uh, proctoring software, the learning management. So we can't just say, well, we need to have people with experience in education design these products because then they come up with things like Proctorio. So true. And I think, so again, from that on the ground practitioner standpoint, at least in my own practice, I don't use Turnitin. I guess that's one way is to refuse to use some of the, the technologies are around. I can't refuse as many as I want, but then also teaching online, that also becomes a really tricky balance because I have to use some sort of vehicle in order to mediate the technology itself. But I think that one way we as individuals can do that is find ways to resist as much as possible. And I say that um, as someone in a, a somewhat vulnerable position as a non-tenured yearly contract person, right? There's, we all have different positionality and agency. And um, when I'm working with others who are struggling with this as well, I think that's certainly something that we have to take into account as we um, individuals are, are trying to navigate this from the teaching standpoint as well. But I think I've become tried to become a little bit more, more bold in what I do resist or refute or push back against and don't give agency to 
you know, some of these tools are built right in. Turnitin, for what is one example, that I think is on by default. So you have to go in to turn it off. You just have to be aware, I think, um, as a practitioner of all of the hidden <laughs> places where these some of the more nefarious technologies um, come into play in our educational setting. I was wondering if you guys wouldn't mind. I have kind of a follow-up question. Um, when you think about the future or futures of emerging technologies, um, what are your thoughts on equity with this? Um, you both kind of touched on it about the inequity. Um, we all have kind of witnessed a glaring crash course behind this during the pandemic when inequities left many behind that were already left behind. Um, marginalized populations had been left behind previously, and then we had um, all of a sudden, people didn't have access to education, and what we thought could just be done by handing them a laptop or a, an iPad, we realized that they didn't even have connectivity access at home. So um, what improvements or changes have you observed, if any, since this time, or what are your thoughts on equity and access as we go forward? My answer at the moment probably is one that doesn't feel very hopeful, <laughs> I think. Unfortunately, I wish I, I did, but I think that the pandemic was that opportunity to see en masse some sort of um, attempt for um, for access, equalizing access. And I don't know if that happened. There's devices, you can get as many devices in hands, but that doesn't necessarily mean or equate to any sort of equity at all. And again, I wish I don't, and I've never, this is another thing as a, a scholar, students would ask me this as well really struggled to come up with a, an answer to, to that question that felt hopeful. And I wish I, um, I wish that wasn't the case. It doesn't mean that there's not hope, but it, it feels at the moment a bit overwhelming to, um, to think about. So maybe going back to um, something in our doctoral program, we talk about our small wins and pockets of places. There are pockets where this can happen, but how can we, I think that's a true challenge, how can the momentum move towards towards that from when there's so much working against us? I think that I think that that's so that feels so that rings so true to me because I feel like that this pandemic, it could have been an opportunity, I think, to really rethink a lot of things. I think rethink some of the very basic fundamental practices of teaching and of assessment. Um, instead, I think what we've seen is a doubling down on ed tech as a surveillance tool. And I think what we know is that that kind of surveillance, uh, both digital and analog, always, always plays out in ways that damage marginalized students, that makes the vulnerable students even more vulnerable. And so I think that what we've seen isn't just simply a matter of a lack of access, a lack of connectivity, but we've seen a lot of schools really decide that the future of teaching and learning looks a lot more like policing students. They're uh, having their cameras on, using the kind of proctoring software that monitors their keystrokes, that wants to peer into their classroom or into their room, uh, wants to record audio, wants to make sure that they're not uh, don't have other devices open, don't have other windows open on the, uh, on their browser. Um, so rather than an opportunity, I think, to re reimagine what teaching and learning can look like with or without technology, I think what we've done in many circumstances is kind of double down on, on the worst of it. 
And that to me is, is quite disheartening. I wonder if that maybe is where lie in lies the small opportunities to continue to amplify and highlight the districts that are pushing against that. Cause there are yes. districts that have refused that it is, they show that this is possible. And I think that educators broadly are so exhausted and beat down and tired right now that it, it is hard sometimes to, to gather that, um, that collective momentum to raise our voices. And with many of us leaving Twitter and not wanting to go there as a place of amplification in, in the past, where, where do we amplify these voices? So maybe this is the opportunity where universities or these podcasts or whomever, we can, we can start to highlight some of those places and people that are um, showing the way um, and pushing against the what what is sometimes the easy button or the the way that they think should things should be, but but that we take that time to really look at this the harm being done. There are there are districts out there that are are working. This, I think that you know taking a refusal seriously is really important too. What you were saying earlier, Lee, about, about you're not you know you're refusing to use certain certain technologies like the plagiarism checker. I think that too often. Folks just have a knee-jerk reaction when when educators don't want to use technology. It's like, oh, you're a Luddite. Get with the times. Get on board. This, you know, there's no getting off the train now. There's no turning back. Um, but rather than that dismissive attitude, really stop and ask questions when people say no, when people refuse. It isn't simply that uh, a, a rejection of technology. And even if it is a, a rejection of technology, ask why. And I think, you know, recognizing the what the kind of power and lack of power that, that plays out when people say no, when people refuse, who gets to refuse? Can students refuse? Um, and paying attention to those moments of refusal is is uh, and resistance is is really is really instructive. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think it it comes back, you know, from my perspective, I think that kind of comes back to this idea of, you know, understanding and, and being critical of those questions. Why are we using something? Why are we, you know, just because it's available, that doesn't mean we should use it. And, and knowing what, again, going back to this idea of, you know, having this critical viewpoint of what are the affordances and constraints so that it's understood when I use something, this is what's happening. So also, hopefully, you know, Audrey, to that, to that point, provide agency for the people who are in charge of those learning environments to be able to make those decisions and to make them, you know, um, with, with an amount of grace, right. To give them this opportunity to make those decisions, to trust them as the professional that they are, to be able to make these calls and decisions about what's happening in, in their context, because who knows better than they do. I mean, this is something we run into all the time, right. And this is one of the biggest issues with any sort of prescriptive, solution anywhere, right? Is like, I know better than you, even though you're the one doing it. So do it this way. Um, and we, I mean, we, there's just no lack of examples of how, how poorly that can turn out. I, I would like to do just kind of keeping a, a, an eye on time. And I know we're kind of running short here. So kind of, I, I would like to sort of pivot here for just kind of like a, a last sort of question for, for both you um, and Lee here. And so thinking, you know, sort of as we look to the futures, 
right, of ed tech. And we know there's all these challenges and opportunities as we move into this new era. I mean, there's, you know, the technology innovation uh, is not going to slow down. I mean, we're on the precipice of this, uh, the fourth industrial revolution. There's increasing constant emphasis on artificial, the role of artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, add in, you know, uh, extended realities and the metaverse and all of these kind of these, these, again, these new promises of technologies that'll be out there that will be you know, again, I'm going to use air quotes here on solutions for these wicked problems facing education today. But I think if, so my final question, I guess, to, to both of you would be, what are we optimistic about? There's so much, and we can, I think we can, we could fill a, a volume here of all the, the, the cautionary tales and the things that we know don't work and the concerns about moving into potentially even an existential sort of environment. But if we look at the other side, you know, what are some of the elements that we're seeing now today that are make us hopeful for the futures of ed tech and education? What What's exciting out there? What exciting or opportunities or new developments or innovation that have you excited? And what might that positive future look like? And if, if we can get there, how do we backcast from a, a better place so that we start thinking about the actions that we're taking today to end up in this much more desirable, desirable future? I'm optimistic because I think that most people have spent the last couple of years deeply immersed in ed education technology, whether they're students or teachers or parents uh, or grandparents or family members. And I think recognize that so many of the promises are really overblown. And I think that people, I think it's going to be, a, I'm hopeful that it's going to be a lot harder for these kinds of big, grand, sweeping promises to uh, to be made when I think the people recognize that it's, it's good that we were able to uh, have options to continue education the best that we could during a pandemic by using virtual teaching and learning. That said, I'm not sure that it's been a stellar experience for very many people. And so I'm hopeful that we can be a little bit more pragmatic, dial down some of our some of the sort of rabid um, fandom for technologies that never seem to fulfill any kind of promise. So and I'm hope I'm hopeful that people that people recognize the value of one another, of community. That for all the talk of personalized learning, how important it actually is to have a communal space to to learn together with our bodies in the same room, not just our faces on uh, on Zoom. That it it really does make a difference to be embodied as a teacher, to be embodied as a learner, and to share that space, that social space, with one another. And the technologies, the technologies get us. Some what some part of the way there, but it's not the same. That's, that's really hard funny. to follow. That's a hard one to follow. <laughs> <laughs> should, have first, should have gone first, Lee. <laughs> but um, I, I think for me, I, I am hopeful that challenging conversations are happening. To be honest, I feel that there wasn't a lot of um, as much challenge to technologies as there were. And as Audrey said, with the pandemic and with everyone truly experiencing online learning, I think that that will hopefully shake out to some really important conversations for those of us entrenched in um, any sort of online learning. I, I told everyone that 
even though I was already teaching online, I was already completely asynchronous. It fundamentally changed my own teaching and learning because the students that were in my course, their lives had completely changed as well. And we we sold online learning as anytime, anywhere learning. And I hope that rhetoric starts to go away because we know it's not anytime, anywhere, anything. <laughs> the pandemic certainly taught us that, that it, um, it's not convenient to, to plug in in certain spots. So it, it does still, as, as much as it might um, surprise a lot of people for some of the <laughs> down sort of conversation that I've had today in that critical turn, I, I am hopeful and, and thankful that these uh, critical conversations are, are starting to get a lot more credence and a lot more noticing in that area so that we can continue to, to push and, and create what the next space is going to be. I appreciate both of your responses. And I guess thinking back to my equity question that I posed, in my hope, it's that you know, the pandemic hasn't quite completely gone away yet. And even though we, there was disequity and we see it now still, I'm still hoping that that, that that's not something that no one's acting on. I want to believe that other people are still looking into this as a way to rethink equitable access, but more engaging opportunities for education. And maybe some of the companies in Silicon Valley are moving away from the commodification of technologies and really thinking about ways to make a difference. So so I just go back to the equity question, but really appreciate both um, Lee and Audrey's, your optimism towards the future. Yeah, absolutely. I would second that. So, you know, I guess we've kind of reached the top of the hour. So I think we need to sort of to wrap up here. Um, so again, I would just like to thank, you know, Lee and Audrey for joining us today um, to discuss the futures of educational technology. I mean, I think this is a a topic and a conversation that could just go on and on. We could create our own anthology here covering all of these different elements because it is such a it's such a a large landscape with so many nuances and variables um, throughout it to to examine. But as we close out here, um, I would just like to ask um, you know Audrey, perhaps if you have any last thoughts or comments or or maybe you want to plug your latest book um, or tell anybody else what you have going on, please feel free. Ah, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, Teaching Machines, uh, you can buy it via the MIT Press website or an independent bookstore near you. And it's a, I think it's an it's an interesting story and the kind of story about ed tech that a lot of people perhaps don't know. And I'm I'm very curious to see how we're able to tell these kinds of stories in the future, since I spent a lot of time in archives going through pieces of paper to, to <laughs> write it. And it's going to be really interesting, you know, a uh, hundred years from now, how we can, how historians piece together this, the story of the pandemic, since I'm guessing there's not a lot of pieces of paper to document this time period. Right. Internet archive. Let's hope. Right. Like That's right. <laughs> as a place. Um, yeah. I mean, and that branch, we, again, I, we'll, we'll end here, but that could branch off in another conversation too, of just in terms of media and art and how do we do that as well? How do we preserve that in a, in a digital um, area and stuff? But again, so, you know, again, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest, you know, in the book, which again is available um, through the MIT press. And we'll put a link uh, in the show notes to that, as well as all of the contact details and all the social media handles that are still active. We'll put those in the show notes as well um, from all of our guests. So, so our listeners uh, can follow and stay up to date with all the latest news and updates from the from their work again thank you for joining us today on the learning futures podcast that's a wrap 
You've been listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and details. If your podcast player allows for reviews, please leave us one and let the world know what you think. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producer is Dr. Sean Leahy, and the show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar, with technical production provided by Jacob Snyder.